0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Carol Warner. I am the executive director of the Environmental and Energy Institute, and we are so glad that you are here uh, with us this afternoon for this briefing on cellulosic ethanol, a technology update. Um, We know that with regard to thinking about all of the innovative technologies we're going to hear about this afternoon just wanted you to also realize we're having to be slightly innovative with regards to the arrangement of the room so that you would all be able to see a screen. So um, we will also plan to do our Q&A from the podium in addition to the presentations uh, to make it a little bit easier so everyone doesn't have to (coughs) do it. Um, So uh, in any event, we are very, very glad that you are here. We think that there is a lot of important information that we're going to hear from our speakers this afternoon, but before we start with regard to our panel discussion on this important topic in terms of really looking at the kinds of technologies that are now at uh, going into production and are in production with regard to cellulosic ethanol, uh, we want to hear um, from a uh, congressional office that has been Uh, certainly very engaged in this whole issue of biofuels and is very concerned with regard to what this means on the security side, on the economic development side, on the environmental side. So to open up our briefing this afternoon is Kalina Bacaloff, who is the Legislative Director for Congresswoman Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, and so we are delighted to have you with us.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Kalina Bacalov. I am Congressman Tammy Duckworth's Legislative Director. Um, To give you a little bit of background on her, Congressman Duckworth is serving her first term in Congress, and she represents the 8th district of Illinois, which covers the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Thank you to the Environmental and Energy Study Institute for organizing this great event, and to our panelists for coming to the Hill today to share your valuable perspective with us. As congressional staffers, we rely on industry experts like you for on-the-ground updates um, and insight to help us better members of Congress in Washington. So we really appreciate you being here today, and we're looking forward to hearing about the exciting indes- um, progress that the industry is making. Congresswoman Duckworth, unfortunately, is not able to be here today, but she's very proud to take part in hosting a discussion on this topic, and I want to take just a minute to tell you why it's important to her. She has been a member of the Illinois National Guard for 23 years, and in 2004, she served as Assistant Operations Officer for a Helicopter Task Force when her unit was deployed to Iraq. There, she experienced firsthand how risky and expensive it is to maintain diesel fuel supply lines in a combat zone. In her words, she saw fellow guardsmen and soldiers risk life and limb for this precious battlefield resource. So for her, renewable, homegrown fuel is not only a matter of uh, critical importance to our environment and to our economy, but it's also a very real matter of national security. This issue is also very important to our constituents in Illinois. Um, Our state is proud to be at the forefront of biofuel development and innovation. The biofuel industry supports thousands of well-paying, green jobs in Illinois and across the country and her constituents understand that energy innovation means cleaner air, healthier communities, and stronger economic growth for our region. That's why in Congress, she has been a big supporter of efforts both within the US military and the civilian sector to develop better, cleaner, and more efficient sources of energy. For these reasons and more, we all have a stake in the technological advances that we will hear about today. As Congress debates the future of the Renewable Fuel Standard and the role that it plays in ensuring our nation's energy independence, it is encouraging and indeed necessary to hear the great progress being made in second generation fuel production. So thank you all again for being here, it's great to see such a great turnout, Um, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Kalina.
0: And folks, there are, uh, if you want, you can take chairs up on the dais. It's your big chance, so go for it, (laughs) right? So, for this briefing, this is the uh, second so far in a series that EEFSI is holding with regard to biofuels. A couple of weeks ago we did a briefing looking at life cycle analysis with regard to, uh, to biofuels and specifically uh, with regard to new updated information with regard to corn ethanol. As Klina said, this briefing is also really important because it's really looking at second generation biofuels. And what we are hoping to do during a whole series of, of uh, briefings on biofuels is to look at the different technologies that are now coming online, the kinds of progress that has been made in terms of technology development, the kinds of feedstocks that are being used, what really is happening both in this country and also in terms of looking at investments around the world. And to also look at what are the different pathways Um, that are available under the renewable fuel standard and we're hoping to look at some of those as well because there are all sorts of exciting things that are underway and I think it's really important and exciting for us to know about those as we look at alternatives so that we are not just having to depend upon oil but that we can really move past oil really looking at other kinds of fuels that can make great sense for a host of reasons, in terms of economic development, in terms of security, as you heard Kalina talk about, as we look at the the huge economic costs um, of reliance upon oil, and as we look at the need to really reduce overall greenhouse emissions. As well as looking at what moving towards other fuels can mean for public health and there's more and more information that is becoming available on that, making it very, very important that we bring this into our discussion with regard to, again, benefits, advantages that biofuels have. So at this time, I want us to start hearing from our panel speakers. Um, Each one has a slightly different take on things in terms of what they are doing, in terms of their technologies, in terms of the kinds of, a little bit of difference in terms of feedstock or approaches, but it is all uh, important, important steps that are moving forward. So often we have heard on Capitol Hill and among the policy community overall, well, nothing is really happening, everything has is taking so long, therefore the policies with regard to renewable fuels really aren't working. And so it's really important to take this fuller look at what the situation really is so that we're really clear of the overall status and that we try to get really good, solid information out and who better to hear it from than people who are industry leaders and are making it happen. So to start off our panel discussion this afternoon, we will first hear from Rob Walter, who is the Director of Federal Affairs with POET, and of course POET DSM have gone into production at a facility in Ammitsburg, Iowa. And we should not forget that this was viewed as such an important thing that the King of the Netherlands made sure to be there for the ribbon cutting. So uh, without further ado, Rob.
2: time, uh, and so thank you for being here, uh, thank you for your interest, and uh, thank you for your support uh, in getting us uh, to this place. So you see from the title, Cellulose ethanol no Fantasy No More, um, this thing is real. For a long time we were asking, could we do it, uh, and I got a question from a reporter the other day that I thought was very telling, um, who's going to win, who's going to build the most? Uh, the narrative has changed significantly. Uh, in the past few months even, uh, about whether or not this thing is real. And so hopefully, by the end of my presentation, you will know it is uh, very, very real. Uh, As was mentioned, I'm here representing not only Poet, but also Royal DSM, our joint venture partner. Uh, Just as a quick background, uh, since not many people know Poet, we are a private company. Uh, We produce 1.7 billion gallons of ethanol in this country. We're the largest. Um, we have 27 plants spread across uh, seven different states, so we are experts at making biofuels. DSM is a science-based company from the Netherlands. Uh, they brought $150 million this deal to invest in the United States, uh, and they have a suite of products spread across many different uh, sectors, uh, including healthcare and nutrition. Um, The best way to think about this joint venture is that Poet is the hardware company and DSM is a software company, and together we make something that works. So there are three key takeaways that I hope I will leave you with today. The first is that cellulose biofuels have arrived uh, at commercial scale. Uh, The second is that 2014 and 2015 uh, are are an inflection point for advanced biofuels. This is really the point at which we will say when we look back, we transitioned from first generation corn ethanol to second generation uh, cellulosic in advanced. And the third is uh, why it's important. And it's important for consumer savings, uh, natural security, and uh, GHG reductions, amongst some host of other things. Uh, but with that, I think it's time to introduce you to our cellulosic plan, uh, Project
3: Selling loss of ethanol planted in the United States. Project Liberty is truly one of a kind. But what exactly did it take to make this fantasy a reality? To start, it took a capital investment of a quarter billion dollars. With an estimated twenty-year economic benefit for Iowa of twenty-four point four billion. The potential for the benefits. We think liberty is a pretty sound investment. Since we broke ground in March of 2013, it has taken several hundred workers and dozens of subcontractors to build the plane. Hundreds of tons of concrete and steel, miles upon miles of pipe. cellulosic ethyl per year starting, with that number growing to 25 million gallons over time. To do this, it will process about
4: 1.5 million pounds of biomass per day.
2: figure out how to build it right. It's a bigger Erector set up, so to speak. Uh, just a quick recap of what you heard in that piece. Uh, this is a plant that will produce 25 million gallons of 90% emissions-free fuel. Uh, just consider that for a minute. 90% emissions-free fuel. If you run 90% emissions-free fuel and put that into E85, and you ran your car on E85, you have a sustainable transportation sector from a GHD standpoint. Uh, we use agricultural waste products that otherwise would be left to degrade uh, on fields. So if this is corn stover, stalks, husks, uh, and uh, and cobs are all used to create ethanol, the same leather compound as we get from corn ethanol. And we made this investment because we think there's a huge potential for return. Uh, so we need market conditions conditions to remain favorable. Uh, Nancy's going to talk a little bit about the RFS and its importance uh, to moving and scaling, Uh, but as long as they remain favorable, we're going to keep building these plants. Uh, We think we can build them every four to six months, start stealing the ground for another plant. Uh, Just from, quickly, an understanding of why we bolt this thing onto a corn plant, this is the model. So the cellulose plant gets this cellulose, corn stoker, and out comes ethanol. Uh, but at the same time, you produce uh, this thing called lignin, which is basically biomass. Uh, and you run that through a solid fuel boiler that creates its own process heat. So it's a closed loop system that doesn't require fossil fuels. But we create so much process heat that we actually don't need it all for the cellulosic plant. We pipe that over to the corn ethanol plant. So we're displacing, via the cellulosic plant, we're displacing fossil fuel used at the corn ethanol plant. Our corn ethanol was uh, uh, looked at and was found to be about 48% fewer emissions than uh, gasoline. This makes it even better. In fact, it starts to take on a GHG profile similar to that of uh, advanced biofuels, the corn ethanol. The reason we cite this uh, at a corn plant also is logistical and infrastructure synergies. We don't have to build out the rail. We don't have to build out the roads. We don't have to build out the pipelines all that stuff that would increase our capital expenditures at the outset. So that allows us to build this thing, the first one out of the box. Also, we deal with the corn farmers already for the corn plant. So we don't have to hire a new sales team. We don't have to hire new folks to get the biomass to the plant. Now eventually that capital cost will come down. We'll learn how to build these things uh, at a cheaper, uh, for, for a cheaper cost. And then we can begin to site them on their own. And take on that capital cost that comes from infrastructure. But for now to get this technology mature we're building on the back of the corn plant. So you hear a lot that this took such a long time. Five years away, five years away, five years away. Well, let's just take a step back. RFS was passed eight years ago. The regs were finalized in 2010. And Liberty, we just broke ground only 18 months ago. So our first attempt, it only took us 18 months to get a working plan in place. Uh, if anyone has ever built something from Ikea, and I know I've built plenty of things uh, during college, you get better at it as you split up a number of these different things. So you, we're going to get it faster. Uh, it's just a question, you know, if there's a conscious skill in place. And in terms of this being a game changer, a lot of people have to talk about a game changing technology. Well, this really is because it
3: allows us to move
2: beyond the corn belt. The feedstock doesn't have another user. You hear a lot about food versus fuel, and while I uh, whether or not there's not enough corn for both food and fuel, that's another conversation. But this feedstock doesn't have another user. Um, It allows us to move beyond the corn belt. We can start using wood waste, rice hulls, sorghum. Those of you who might be from offices or from states that aren't in the corn belt, you may hear about those crops and start thinking. Maybe, maybe my state. Pacific Northwest, Southwest, Southeast, Northeast, they all open up to us. So the game really changes. And then the feedstock flexibility just helps uh, tremendously because then, you know, if you have uh, some problem with the corn crop, you still will have cellulose uh, coming from different feedstocks. So again, it's just important uh, to differentiate. So this is the tip of the iceberg for POE at DSM. It's 3.5 billion gallons of 90% emissions for fuel. We've identified that we can begin to commercialize very soon, as long as, again, we have market certainty. So why should you care? Well, hopefully you do, but I'm trying to convince you anyway. Um, First is consumer savings. Uh, Gas would be between $0.50 and $1.50 more per gallon. Uh, if it wasn't for ethanol today, uh, that price would go down even further, those savings would be felt even more if we got into an E15 market, and hopefully we're moving in that direction. Um, this is just a snapshot, so you know that it's actually in the real world, too. Uh, Lansing, Michigan, $4.71 $4. versus $3.51. I take the right-hand side. Um, and we know this makes sense because oil just hovers around $100 a barrel and ethanol is around $40 a barrel. So, again, big delta. Um, we also know that oil is very sensitive to geopolitical events. When ISIS invaded Iraq and took her cook, uh, and at the same time you had Putin's saber, saber-rattling uh, in the Ukraine, uh, oil climbed to uh, $114 a barrel. So, uh, This is uh, something that we would hope to alleviate that that type of sensitivity and actually the E10, having 10% of fuel coming from ethanol, has provided a hedge against those uh, geopolitical events. I won't go too far into the side, but read the names of those countries, Libya, Venezuela, uh, Iraq, Syria, Iran, Russia, Um, not exactly the most friendly (coughs) to our interests. And we know that ISIS is making an estimated 2 to $3 million a day uh, on the oil market. Uh, if we could remove U.S. demand, we would hopefully draw those prices down uh, and, of course, uh, strangle put a stranglehold on their funding environmental sustainability, Cellulosic ethanol must, by definition, be 60% better uh, than uh, gasoline's 2005 greenhouse gas uh, emission levels. Ours is 90%. um, And you see the single plant will reduce over 210,000 CO2 per year. There's some question about removing biomass off the field. We only remove 25%. And what we've seen, actually, is that not only helps farmers become more productive, but it reduces their demand for fertilizer. Uh, at the beginning part, because you have the sun able to hit the ground and they able to get uh, better yields uh, earlier uh, or better conditions earlier on. So, uh, again, this is beneficial also from a greenhouse gas perspective. So, where will the industry stand? Like I said, Nancy's going to hit on market uh, issues around the RFS. But if the RFS Debate turns, um, and you see some sort of tweaking of it or administrative uh, uh, malfeasance there with regards to the, the intent of the Congress. There are other countries out there that are clamoring for us to do uh, to bring cellulosic to them. Brazil has a requirement of E30. Europe, uh, like we talked about with Putin, is looking for options, and cellulosic is very, very attractive to them. We've been getting approached by them quite often. I think China has not only energy problems but also public health problems. They don't really care as much about CO two as they do about mercury, SOx, NOx, etc. So they they are looking for uh, options that uh, will keep people healthy. So these are some of the photos that we're seeing right now. This is the industry that's being created around cellulose, and the question is: Do we keep going forward in this country? You have strong RFS. We do. But this is happening. It's real. And thank you for being a part of it, those of you who are here in Health the law. So, thank you very much. Thanks, Rob. And I think it's
0: always really interesting in terms of thinking about what the whole realm of possibilities really is as we look at the range of appropriate feedstocks around every part of the country and that every part of the country can play an important role in this this vast, evolving industry. So we're now going to hear from Chris Stanley, who for 20 years has been with Abengoa, and he is currently Executive Vice President for Global Affairs with Abengoa Bioenergy. And Abavilla Bioenergy is uh, one of the largest international producers of ethanol, operating 14 production facilities in the the US, in Europe, and in Brazil, with a commercial scale biomass to ethanol facility in final developmental stages, uh, expecting to go into production this year.
3: Thank you very much, and uh, thanks again to all of you for coming. I think you're going to hear a lot of the same messages today from all of us uh, at the presentation table. But uh, I want to expand on a few things that Rob said and then tell you a little bit about our plan. First of all, why do we need renewable fuels right now? The United States is producing more petroleum than it ever has. It's projected to produce even more. Um, you know, do we still care about energy security? Do we still care about the price of oil? And the answer, overwhelmingly, is yes. Um, First of all, you have to understand that today, ethanol comprises 10% of U.S. transportation fuel supply. In addition to that 10%, uh, the United States still imports 40% of its annual transportation needs and pays $1 billion every day for that privilege. So, yes, there's plenty of room for more uh, local production, more United States production of petroleum, uh, and yet there are reasons to Consider the uh, advantages of the alternatives of renewable fuels. Uh, you know, and Not only do we, do we have the 40% that we still could replace, but in addition to that, oil is, and will become even more, a global commodity. The prices are going to be based on, not upon what is needed or used in the United States, but upon what's needed or used in the world as that demand grows more and more thirsty as third world the countries develop and energy becomes more and more uh, of a need. So, the bottom line is, uh, yes, we have a need from an energy security standpoint, a need from a a pricing standpoint, Uh, a couple of things that Rob already mentioned, uh, and and this slide just simply says that yes, in the U.S., uh, we're 10% of the supply, and and as the RFS is implemented, uh, we have the potential of going up to roughly 25% of the the, uh, transportation fuel supply in the United States. In addition, ethanol is more green. Not only... Cellulosic so like ethanol, which Rob said is roughly 90% better than baseline gasoline and greenhouse gas emissions, but also first generation ethanol, which is at least 20% according to the EPA better. So we have a, we have a product that's better for the environment. Uh, in, on the energy security side, this is just another graph that shows uh, in red the United States, green Brazil, blue uh, Europe, uh, and the, the um, Potential increase is based upon policies and, and legislation that's in place today. I'm not going to go into the details of that. Uh, also, on the price side, you know, if you look purely at price alone, um, the just on average from 2007 through 2013, ethanol is 27 cents per gallon cheaper than gasoline. In addition to that, the one thing that you can, you have to go beyond just the pure price of ethanol versus gasoline to get the true benefit, because what it does is ethanol, which is 116 octane, is able to replace the more expensive octane components of gasoline as it is blended. So in addition to the fact that you're having cheaper ethanol, you also have a petroleum industry that is capable now of producing a lower-priced blend stock. So they uh, compound that savings uh, for the consumer or for the petroleum company, depending. Yes, we do need alternative fuels. We need renewable fuels, and cellulosic ethanol is a tremendous, uh, a tremendous product that we believe has great opportunity and great promise in the United States. Abengoa, as was said, is a uh, an international uh, su- uh, proponent of sustainable uh, technologies in both energy and environmental aspects. We produce uh, drinking water from, from seawater we desalinate water. To We work with water purification systems and transportation systems for cities around the country. We're the world's largest constructor of power transmission lines uh, on multiple continents. Uh, And we have huge solar investments, wind investments, and then of course biofuels investments. So we, in the biofuel side, are talking about uh, diversifying our product mix. We have, as was mentioned, uh, 14 first-generation plants on three continents. In addition to that, we have three facilities uh, at, that produce second-generation uh, biofuel on a lab, or not a lab, but a uh, demonstration on a pilot scale, uh, scale basis, and then we have, we're about to complete our project in Fugiton, Kansas. As a matter of fact, we expect the production to start virtually any day, and our grand opening is October 17th, so anybody who wants to come to Sunny Beauty's and Pants on October 17th, is quite welcome to join us for that. Um, and I'll talk about that facility in, in a moment, but what I want to talk about just before we get there is the fact that Evan Go is a technology provider, we focus on R&D to spent. Over 500 million dollars in 2013 on r and We have over 700 researchers uh, that focus on research and development of these technologies. We are we see the potential way beyond just the agricultural residue, uh, cellulosic ethanol. So we have a situation where uh, you know some people might say that ethanol is not the perfect fuel. Uh, I don't know that there is a perfect fuel, but uh, but but we're improving it as we go along. We are making it much more. Uh, greenhouse gas friendly, uh, and at AdnGO we are working to diversify into different, both into different feedstocks and into different products. So uh, we have a facility that we've been operating in central Spain now for almost two years, uh, that uh, well, 18 months anyway, uh, that that will produce the same cellulose ethanol from the organic fraction of municipal solid waste. Take trash, take out, and pull out the metal, the plastic, and the recyclables take the organic fraction, which is the majority of the waste anyway uh, and extract the cellulose sugars from that and convert that into ethanol. So we're diversifying the feedstock side. We're also diversifying the product side, uh, working into um, uh, butanols and other type of uh, petroleum like products, jet fuels and that sort of thing, uh, working to develop those from um, on the output side in addition to the ethanol itself. In addition to that, we're, uh, and one thing that that will do is allow us to move beyond just the center of the United States and to move into a, a situation where we can go to the coast, anywhere where there's a large urban area we can take the trash from the, from the local landfill, convert that into a fuel, and have it available without having to transport long distances, either from the standpoint of the feedstock or the final product. So, a lot of potential benefits for there. Um, ABIGOA also continues its investments into hydrogen and other products. But, bottom line, Hueyton, uh, which is, as I say, starting up in a day. Um, 25 million gallons is the capacity of the facility. Uh, it is, uh, in, addition to the, in addition to the ethanol, we will produce 21 megawatts of renewable power. What we do is we extract the cellulose sugars from the agricultural residues. This is based upon agricultural residues, both uh, corn stover, some uh, milo stubble, and wheat straw primarily, but also some switchgrass. We actually have a 900-acre tract there, and on about 400 acres we're growing uh, some switchgrass themselves. Uh, there's also another switchgrass farm in the vicinity, and then we have some other naturally occurring prairie grasses. So, but once we get those feedstocks inside the facility, Uh, We extract the cellulose sugars, and what's left is primarily lignin. That lignin is used to power the boilers, uh, and from those boilers, we will become virtually self-sustaining. We will produce all of the steam that we need for the facility, all of the electricity that we need for the facility, facility, and still have an additional 5 megawatts of electricity, more or less, available for exporting to the grid. We completed the... uh, the boiler and the electric cogeneration facility uh, and its first sold power to the grid back in December uh, getting ready to start up the, <coughs> the ethanol site today. So um, the startup is, is imminent uh, we uh, again will need between 300 and 350,000 tons per year of biomass in order to do that. Um, our objective is to produce this product for roughly $2.30 per gallon and we believe we're on track to do that. Uh, there's a tremendous economic benefit to the area, which I want to highlight, and that is the fact that we have 76 local employees, roughly a $5 million employment. Uh, in addition to farmers within a 50-mile radius of the facility, we will pay them, we've contracted to pay them, about 17 million gallons annually in feedstock uh, payments. So that uh, that will be uh, a significant additional resource for the area that just simply didn't exist before. Um, during construction, which was about a little over a two- year period, uh, we had anywhere from 300 to 1,500 full-time employees on site. It was a huge event and a huge revenue generator for the, for the area. Uh, the facility itself, this is a relatively recent picture about oh, six, to eight, six to eight weeks ago. You can see the biomass bales in the foreground, for uh, uh, areas of input, uh, which is the, right in front of those biomass bales. In the upper right-hand corner, or background is the uh, the boiler itself. That's about a ten-story tall structure. And then the uh, biomass bales in, in the back. Uh, and that's one of our bale storage areas. We have multiple satellite storage areas, and then we do a lot of on-farm storage also. Uh, newer than that, this was actually just within the last few days. It is uh, there's a picture of the facility ready to run. Uh, once again. Uh, you know, the, the size is just hard to describe. This is a picture of the uh, bale loading area. We, we uh, are using square bales for our facility and we have uh, created this facility so that only one person can go to the, with, with, the, with the trailers that we have, have built and modified. One person can drive to the field, load an entire stack of feedstock onto his truck, drive to the facility, we can unload four trucks at a time, uh, and this just again, just the driver and back into the facility, and it's all an automated process. So he can unload this, this uh, feedstock into the facility and go from there. This was a picture of the boiler back in startup in December when we started that up. Again, uh, roughly a 10 story tall area. Um, I kept asking for pictures of people because we had 1,500 people on site and no one ever gave me <laughs> pictures of people. But they said, well, if you look, you can see like eight or ten guys on the catwalk. Like, no. I said, okay, and that gives me some idea of perspective. That helps a little bit. Um, the obligatory night picture taken by one of our employees with a drone. have a pretty cool view on that. Um, one thing I want to talk about, and then I'll sit down, uh, just kind of the improvements that have been made just in the last four years. As Rob said, we've been working on this technology for some period of time. We're very happy to have it finally come to fruition, and we do see great opportunity. Uh, but the, uh, I want to talk about the benefits the improvements that we've made. First of all, enzymes. We've developed our own proprietary enzyme that, that we utilize in connection with uh, this facility. Um, and in general, industry-wide, the cost of enzymes have gone down dramatically. For us, the cost of enzymes have gone down from a dollar eighty-five a gallon to roughly fifty cents a gallon. We think they have a lot of improvements still to go. Um, yield costs have gone down twenty percent since in that same four-year period, and, and yields themselves have improved from fifty-five to seventy-five gallons per ton. That's huge. That, that is what has allowed us to make this product, frankly, at a operating cost that is Cheaper than gasoline is sold for on a per gallon basis today. Uh, this is a picture of our facility that, uh, in central Spain in Salamanca, Spain, it takes uh, uh, 25,000 tons of municipal solid waste and produces up to 1.5 million liters of, of ethanol from that. So, um, I, I will say that we have decided that we, we have operations in Brazil. We are very Interested in licensing, marketing, building these facilities all around the world. Our next facility, we started development on in San Luis, Brazil, uh, and we are very excited to uh, continue with development there. And assuming, uh, and we have every belief that the Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Congress will continue to support the RFS and continue to do what's going on, uh, or continue to do what is uh, necessary to keep the policy in place. So. Um, With that, we look forward to future investments around the world. Thanks.
0: And now we're going to hear from another piece of the industry. All these folks and companies all see a lot of potential, both here in the U.S. and around the world. in terms of addressing these important issues in terms of technology development and looking at markets. And uh, next up, and we will hear from Nancy Clark, who is the external relations manager uh, for industrial biosciences with DuPont. And at DuPont, Nancy is responsible for their industrial uh, biosciences St- strategic agenda for biofuels, biomaterials, and bioactives. And she is working there in terms of business development and regulatory policy. She previously had also worked um, on air and climate programs as the director for the American Forest and Paper Association and had been the director of energy at the American Chemistry Council. And I think one of the things that you will hear from her, but that we've also heard from my two previous speakers too, is that. With regard to all of this, we're looking at these facilities in terms of there always being co-products. So in each case, there are different models for biorefineries, but I also find it so fascinating in terms of what the different co-products really are, because it really changes a lot of things when you're looking at revenue streams coming from a whole variety of different opportunities.
4: Good afternoon. Nancy Clark um, with DuPont Industrial Life Sciences. Um, I want to start by congratulating my colleagues. Um, it's been a little while since we've gotten some updates um, in it, this it regard on uh, the City Capital Ethanol Plan. And I want to congratulate their progress. I um, find really exciting all the detail that you had to share today. Um, so thanks very much. So DuPont um, is also under construction on a City Capital Ethanol Plan. Um, Ours is uh, scheduled uh, to be completed uh, for construction and commissioning uh, later this year. Um, And we've been essentially practicing this technology for more than 10 years um, in cooperation with the Department of Energy. We opened a research and development uh, facility in Monarch, Tennessee um, back in 2009. Um, We've been producing cellulosic ethanol at that facility since that time on the order of 250,000 gallons per year. Uh, we've donated all of those gallons to the University of Tennessee um, for use in their um, advanced fuel fleet there. So we're confident uh, in our technology and ability. The, uh, the, the plant that we're under construction on in, uh, in Iowa is um, essentially just a larger scale of that 12 the facility. Uh, we went around uh, in Nevada, Iowa um, in 2012. Um, it's a plot that's just about 20 miles or so of Des Moines. Um, Like our uh, fellow colleagues um, in the industry, um, we're we're seeing um, some great developments um, in the rural economy in terms of employing construction workers on full-time positions, um, uh, engaging with uh, 500 farms um, in the radius of the plant, um, and being able to supply um, an additional income stream uh, for those farmers, um, for the steward that we're able to take um, from their farms for use of the facility. So again, um, we're harvesting stover from about 815,000 acres um, in a 30 mile radius around the plant. Um, the stover uh, is taken off the field using a very data-driven science approach. Um, so then we're not taking any more stover than is necessary uh, in order to preserve the soil and water health um, in the area. Um, and then to be able to take the stover uh, back to the plant um, for, for feedstock use uh, for the facility. So DuPont's um, approach is, is somewhat different um, in terms of our business objective um, for what we would like to do with the, the, the plant and the technology. Um, we basically want to um, package um, the technology and the know-how um, in a couple of different ways. Um, the feedstock development, so through our DuPont Pioneer um, seed business, uh, we have um, significant relationships with farmers, um, we have uh, the ability to partner with other U.S. companies um, for the um, equipment that you'll see here in the, in the photograph that I'll show the facility. Um, we want to uh, be able to package uh, the technology know-how. Um, we also have the ability uh, to um, license um, the enzymes for the development of cellulose cellulosic ethanol um, and so we want to be able to put that together um, in, in the package. Um, to license it to others to be able to build similar plants as uh, one that we're currently under construction on. In the meantime, we've uh, been partnering with quite a number of parties. Um, the United States Department of Energy, through a, a, a memorandum of understanding, um, to develop a sustainable um, a feedstock program. Um, Iowa State University has a wonderful research department, um, and we've been able to partner with them. Um, taking advantage of the relationships with farmers in the region um, because of Pioneer's um, existence um, in Iowa for some time. Um, and uh, again, using that um, scientific approach um, and Pioneer know-how for uh, agronomy um, to use a very science and, and data-driven uh, approach to be able to um, maintain the sustainability of harvesting this silver. This is a photograph that was taken um, at the the site um, about a month ago. Um, Construction um, is going extremely well. We're very pleased with the progress um, and we're on track to uh, complete that um, late in 2014. the other item I wanted to touch on was um, essentially the challenges to Um, having um, the the three companies in this room that have talked about the cellulosic ethanol plants that are under construction and coming online to be able to basically replicate this here in the united states Um, it's certainly all in all of our interest to be able to um, multiply the number of plants here in the u.s Um, and what we're seeing is a real challenge to that Um, dupont's uh, intention and drive over the past few years has been to Um, have conversations here in the U.S. for licensing the plant and the technology, Um, and basically what we're seeing as a result of um, some challenges to the RFS policy is that those conversations are happening outside the U.S. Um, So both uh, challenges on the regulatory side, Um, so as you all may know, um, EPA is proposing to reduce for the first time the total renewable volume (coughs) um, for renewable fuel. And so, uh, investment here in the United States is essentially drying up. And so, those conversations are happening in places like South America, in Asia, in the EU. Um, And so, we're seeing much more traction around um, developing additional plants in those places. Um, I don't think, however, that that story has completed itself yet. And we still have a chance to make sure that the additional plants are built here. Um, And that can happen with support of the policy, both through Congress and Um, have an EPA change course in terms of the rulemaking for Renewable Fuel Standard for this year but also for additional years. That's it. Thank you very much. Thanks,
0: Nancy. And our final speaker this afternoon is Amy Davis, who is with government relations for Novosigns North America. <coughs> and of course, Novosigns is an international bioinnovation company uh, <coughs> and enzyme producer that is uh, deeply involved in the development of biotech materials and products for application in detergents, biofuels, food, feed, and sustainable agriculture. And Amy also brings experience from having worked with bio, the biotechnology industry organization where she worked on a variety of issues related to advancing biofuels, bio-based products, and the bioeconomy overall.
5: Thank you, Carol, and thanks to ESI for putting on this event, to all of you for attending and giving us your wonderful attention. Uh, I wanted to come at this from the angle that Nova Designs does, which is um, the first commercial of cellulose and ethanol plants are coming online in the US, as you all just heard, which is fantastic news. Um, but the investment in this industry, uh, in this country, has actually been happening uh, in a significant way for at least a dozen years, if not more. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the way No Designs thinks about this technology. So I'll start just briefly, who is No Designs? Uh, as Carl said, we're the world leader in what we like to call bioinnovation. Uh, We strive to change the world together with our customers and create the necessary balance between better business, a cleaner environment, and better lives. We were founded in 1925. We're a $2 billion global biotech company um, with 33% of our sales in the U.S. As Carol mentioned, our main business area is Enzymes. Um, In nature, Enzymes kickstart biological processes. They're proteins. They're found in all living things. But in industry, enzymes replace chemicals and accelerate production processes as well as save water, energy, and raw materials, all while increasing performance. Our other core business areas are agricultural biologicals, industrial microorganisms, and biopharma technology and ingredients. We are 6,200 people worldwide, over 1,200 of those in North America, as you can see, the US portion of my map is getting quite crowded, which is great. We have nine uh, site locations here in the US. We have over 700 products in more than 30 industries. We don't make end products, including ethanol, um, but we are technology providers to many products that you encounter in your everyday life. 13 to 14% of our revenue is invested back in R&D, we're an R&D intensive company. And we currently hold more than 7,000 granted or pending patents. We conduct life cycle assessments for a sustainability company uh, on all of our products. In 2013, our products helped reduce global CO2 emissions by approximately 52 million tons, which is the equivalent to taking about 20 million cars off the road. I'd like to approach the conversation today um, via a little trip through history, if you'll indulge me. Um, I'm sure you all remember, uh, in October of 1973, uh, OPEC implemented what it called oil diplomacy. Uh, It prohibited any nation that had supported Israel in the Yom Kippur War from buying oil, including the United States. It started with a 5% cut per month, and by December, it declared that the true enemies of the Arab cause, including the U.S., would be subject to an indefinite total embargo. At that time, the United States imported 27% of its petroleum needs. As a result of the embargo, the value of the New York Stock Exchange dropped by $97 billion. The price per barrel of oil was 130% higher in December of 1973 than it had been in October, and 387% higher than it had been just the year before. Within six months, the average price of retail gas in the United States more than doubled. I have to confess I've been inspired today. I just spent the last week visiting my colleagues in Brazil. So you have to indulge me a bit that I brought that into the conversation. The US and Brazil uh, during the oil embargo of 1973 took two different paths. Brazil instituted what still so-called the National Alcohol Program, which included transition to flex fuel pumps by the oil industry, flex fuel car production by the auto industry, and obviously biofuel production by the biofuel community. In the U.S., we focused on gasoline rationing. Everyone remembers seeing the photos of gas lines, right? Um, And reducing the speed limit to increase efficiencies. And we made a pledge to eliminate our dependence on foreign oil. Today, even with all the oil and gas developments in the U.S., we import 33% of our petroleum. Now 34% of that is from Canada, but 55% of it continues to be from So where is the U.S. and Brazil today? Uh, I just saw it last week with my own eyes. Brazil, as Rob mentioned, has just raised their regular unleaded blend to include 27.5% ethanol nationally. And 85% of the cars on the road there are flex fuel. They can run on 100% ethanol. Pumps are blender pumps. Cars on the road are flex fuel, and consumers have a choice based on price. In the U.S., um, we have the RFS that is under attack, and the oil industry here is claiming a 10% cap based on technology. Uh, they call the "bendable." Uh, in more recent history, the next energy crisis we all remember was September 11, 2001. On the slide in front of you, you'll see just a few statements um, that President George W. Bush did some excerpts from some statements that he made in the years following September 11. Um, I think we've all heard them before and continue to hear them today. Prices people are paying at the gas pumps reflect the addiction to oil. it's a matter of security, it's a matter of energy or economic security. Uh, it's like a hidden tax on the working people. It reflects a global economy. So that leads us to the enactment of what we're here to talk about today, the 2005-2007 renewable fuel standard, and the industry it created. So let's remember, why did we pass the RFS back in those uh, two years? What were we as a country striving for? And I think you'll recognize, again, all of these here. Reduce dependence on foreign oil. uh, Reduce the price of domestic transportation fuels. Reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Increase US farm income and reduce subsidies. Uh, valuable co products, as we've talked about today, and the one Novazymes got really excited about innovation. Since 2005, and even before, Novazymes worked diligently and side by side with the US government to accelerate commercial development of the technology to turn renewable cellulosic biomass into sugars <laughs> that could then be turned into different products, like fuel, that could replace petroleum consumption. What that means is that non-food feedstocks, like ag-, ag residues and municipal solid waste that you heard about earlier today, can be turned into transportation fuel. So the point, I think, on this slide is that the U.S. government has made a significant investment in this technology along with companies like all the ones you see up here today. And it hasn't just happened over the last couple of years. The good news is we did it. Uh, as was mentioned, cellulosic enzyme costs have been reduced to a level where they're no longer a barrier to commercialization as we saw with the plant openings um, happening to the folks to my right. So why did No Designs, a global biotech company, place literally a global big bet on cellulosic biofuels? All of the above energy policy is great, and we support many alternatives to increase the diversification of our energy supply the biofuels are the only large-scale sustainable substitute for fossil fuels that's available for to use today. If we want an immediate impact to the national economic and energy security in the U.S., liquid biofuels must be a larger part of our transportation fuel supply. A lot of innovation still happens in the corn ethanol space, you heard some of it earlier today. Novazymes has launched some recent uh, products into the corn ethanol space to increase efficiency and uh, reduce energy use, reduce corn consumption for that industry, but the big bet that we took was on cellulosic biofuels. (coughs) So like everyone else, this is our new manufacturing plant. Ours began in 2012. Uh, so, you know, back when the RFS was passed, we knew that we needed incre- increase manufacturing capacity globally. Um, clearly, the RFS had a huge impact on where we were going to that facility. We wanted to be here in the United States, ready for our cellulosic partners when they got to this point, which is starting up their cellulosic facilities. And so, uh, we began operations in 2009, opened the plant in 2012. It's operating today with 100 full-time uh, careers. Leading, techni- we're leading technology to the conventional and advanced biofuels industry. That plant right there is expandable eightfold um, for the full capacity of the RFS. So this is actually not a big slide. Uh, clearly, I think it actually has 2012 on it. So I was going to update the slide, but then I thought what might be a better visual is to keep it and overlay our selling loss of investments and partnerships that have taken place globally. Since instability in the RFS first started, first here in Congress and then over at the EPA and the Obama administration, 18 months, two years ago. First, in the United States, Project Liberty is online. Fantastic. Very exciting. Uh, Obama administration proposes a reduction in the RFS. Not so great. Um, As I said, No Designs introduces technology for the corn industry. Globally, This is what's happened. Uh, I'm not going to read them all out to you, but you will see quite a bit of activity around Brazil, including Grandview. that just announced production starting up at their 2G facility, Raisan. They raised the ethanol blend, as I mentioned before, and probably an area that we're looking at as far as increasing our capacity as well. The EU has had some stuff come online. China and India, obviously, also in the race. So we all know why we needed the RFS in 2005. Why do we still need it today? Obviously, there's still unrest in the world, and our reliance on global oil is still a problem. We still rely heavily on unfriendly parts of the world, and we can't predict who will be unfriendly in the future. The U.S. consumer deserves a choice of pump for cheaper, cleaner domestic fuels. Cellulosic biofuels need a market, and the investors need to see that there's a market, and Grob tipped on that earlier. The technology that we developed here in the U.S. for the cellulosic industry will be commercialized. As I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of investment is already taking place in this industry, and it will commercialize. We do look at this as a global market. The United States should be able to take advantage of the technology they developed here. I would also mention that even if your state does not ever get a manufacturing facility or ever sells an ounce of biomass to this industry, every state and every district has a stake in this game. If you are paying less at the pump as a consumer, that means that that money that you don't spend on gasoline, you can spend in your local community and other businesses. And that's a benefit for everyone. In closing, almost 81% of the world's proven oil reserves are located in open countries. But this is the world according to agriculture. I'm very proud of this. I took this picture myself last week on the street. People <laughs> 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 okay. know I was a little bit um, Consumers will demand choice at top, and they'll hold their public officials accountable. Brazil have the, held national elections yesterday, and the U.S. will hold ours in a few weeks. Congress and the administration do have a choice, and I would just ask what path the U.S. will take this time.
0: providing that kind of a context in terms of putting all of this in perspective uh, with regard to the issues that we're dealing with here in the U.S. on a policy side, looking at all of the technology investments and our production that is moving forward. We thought that it was terribly important to make sure that we all were aware of what really is happening in this very dynamic and innovative industry and, as you heard, very international industry. So let's open it up for your questions and comments. And if you can identify yourself, please, when you uh, ask your comment, and then I'll ask whoever you're addressing your question to to come over here. So it won't be so difficult to choose uh, Any questions, comments? Okay, over here, please. Hi, my name is Brent Nelson. I'm a AAA Science and Technology Policy
2: Fellow. Um, for Evan Jones and Poet, you guys both talked about. Um, and reference cost per volume, um, so cost per gallon, cost per barrel. And I was wondering if you could comment on what the actual numbers are for cost per energy, because you have different energy contents
3: on than this stuff. Yeah. You know, but, uh I mean, we don't have a specific cost per, per I don't have a specific cost per, Energy BTU content. But the one thing that I will say is that I know that one of the things that the automobile manufacturers are saying right now, if you look at the posts on the Society of Automotive Engineers, the SAE website, uh, both engineers from Ford and Mercedes are saying that just about the only feasible way that they can see us, that they can see the automobile industry complying with both the uh, emissions requirements, which are getting tighter and tighter and the uh, caffeine miles per gallon requirements which are getting larger and larger at the same time is to utilize a high octane fuel in uh, smaller, uh, high compression, turbocharged turbocharged engines um, and in order to get that high octane fuel they also note that the only feasible way to do that today is with uh, like a 25 or 35% uh, ethanol blend and what they, according to their websites that basically eliminates any kind of mileage loss based upon a BTU basis. So I think the way that we're heading, to answer your question, in a roundabout way, is to say that, that there can be no mileage loss, depending on the way vehicles are tuned and the way that the fuels are formulated. Anybody else want to comment? Okay. Great.
0: Um,
6: okay. Hard to Hi, folks, I'm John Copper, the executive director of the National Conduct Research Center. And Amy, in particular, I appreciate your comments taking a direct shot at the EPA. I think that's warranted. I think their proposed ruling last November was completely absurd. Um, So so my question, I'd like a 30-second comment from from each person, if they don't mind. If, If the White House doesn't get this right on this final ruling by the EPA, what are your thoughts or what are your company's intentions on continued investment in R&D and innovation. Thanks. Thank
2: so I wanted to be very positive uh, during <laughs> this presentation. and Unfortunately, you are taking me to a pretty negative place. Um, the RFS as a design created 15 billion gallons that can be satisfied by corn ethanol. The rest of it can be satisfied by advanced ethanol. Cellulose, right? We have in this country built out 15 billion gallons of capacity, corn ethanol capacity. So a company like Coed, that did very well off the corn ethanol, is not building another corn ethanol plant because of that RFS cap. And this is all pretext I think that we used to have. Instead, we had free paths to continue to grow the market that we can access. We could either consolidate via other corn ethanol plants and to grow our share of all. We could go overseas and begin to take advantage of the markets that exist in other countries like Brazil, or we could begin to delve into this mysterious place of advanced biofuels. And we chose to go into advanced biofuels because we're an American-based company, all of our jobs are here. We want to be at the forefront of this 16 billion gallon market. Unfortunately, uh, what UK is and I know I'm going over exactly, but I think it's just worth uh, really getting in that context. Unfortunately, what UK is doing is they are rolling back on the volumes and therefore displacing the existing corn ethanol volume that exists. So it puts a company like mine in a place where we have to ask ourselves, well, if they did it to the corn ethanol, could they do it to advance? Could they, if we put it in this investment, will they roll back on us? And actually, more importantly, the investor asset that. Remember, we need to sign off-take agreements to get these, these gallons out the door. We can't sign those off-take agreements because the, the customer are the oil companies and they choose to say no to us. So the RFS was, a, was an off-take agreement replacement. It's a market correction device. Some people say mandate. The would really call it a market correction device. And if you take away that certainty, if you take away market certainty, you take away revenue certainty. If you take away revenue certainty, then you take away rate of return on investment certainty. And the investors will jack up your cost of capital. So all of a sudden, that 6% return I had to provide, all of a sudden, because we're considered more risky, becomes 10%, 14%, 20%. And so it just becomes, you know what, we're done. We're going overseas. We're going to start buying foreign corn at I hope that answers your question. But it's really important to remember this thing opens up market access to us in what is otherwise a closed fuel market. Um,
3: and you ask for comments from everyone. And from MDOS perspective, uh, I want to say that there's no doubt in <coughs> that the proposal that the EPA made back in November of last year has impacted investment, uh, the investment market and, and investment interest in second-generation ethanol, there's no really doubt about it. Policy certainty is one of the most important things in, in driving that you know, investor confidence and, and investor certainty, but from our standpoint, uh, you know, we've chosen to do a second project in Brazil. Uh, we would, uh, we, you know, again, we still have confidence that the EPA is very supportive of, of biofuels in general, and particularly second-generation ethanol. Uh, we also have high hopes that they will do the right thing in their next rule. Uh, if, it, uh, if, if, if they do not, if for some reason it, it, you know, the policy uncertainty is still there, then frankly we'll just have to see what the market impact is and decide where to invest. There are other options, and, and we're very interested in investing more money in the United States, uh, but there are, also, there are other options and other places to invest also.
1: So I think, as I
4: mentioned, um, you know, the department really had intentions to um, license the technology here in the US and then um, made great uh, um, strides to be able to do that. Um, at the time when EPA issued the proposed rules, when we really saw to see that we saw investors pull back um, from those conversations. Um, and so I think what will happen um, if EPA uh, saves the course with these reduced uh, volumes is we'll continue to see Um, a lack of investor interest here in the U.S. um, and continued conversations and project development in other countries.
5: I would agree with what everyone's saying. I think we're all probably completely aligned on, on what the impact has been. But I will add that you know the original intent of the RFS was um, biofuel producers. If you're able to make this fuel and it doesn't cost too much, it will be a market for you, as Rob said. Um, this proposed rule has flipped that completely on its head. What we see is um, because the numbers, the volumes for corn um, ethanol have been rolled out, rolled back below production capacity. that's stranded investment. If you can do it one. You can do it the other, as Rob said. Um, And I think I just want to make the point that um, while the volumes are very important, what those final volumes is, it's really the methodology that they're using to get there. In our um, estimation, the reading uh, says that instead of if you make it, they will have to buy it, it flips it on its head and says, um, you know, if the oil companies don't want to blend it, then, then we will... It will not be required that they purchase your fuel. Um, so putting our market access in the hands of the obligated parties is obviously not a super stable place to be. Um, and uh, you know what happens to our investment uh, is way above my pay grade. <laughs> but I can tell you that um, you know I showed you that map of what we've done just with the instability we've seen over the eighteen 18- or twenty four month period. Great. Thank you. Okay. Over here
1: first. Amanda Paterka with Embarkings and Energy Publishing. Um, DuPont today announced that it was partnering with Procter & Gamble to bring cellulosic ethanol into Tide laundry detergent. And I'm wondering if any of the rest of you, and, and DuPont also, if you see any other opportunities beyond the transportation fuels market for cellulosic ethanol.
7: Everybody wants a piece of this
4: tattoo.
2: Uh, yes, uh, but it doesn't necessarily just have to be cellulosic. And this goes back to the other question why would we build, the cellulosic ethanol is the same molecule as corn ethanol. Why would we build a $270 million plant that costs, uh, it's $190 million more than the same size corn ethanol plant down in Brazil if we wanted to service a different market? So one thing we're looking at are cook that would have a membrane that we could bring into island nations. We're actually working on a project with Haiti right now. Um, that would be an incredible use and provide a means of avoiding black carbon, you know, from pet coke. Um, but again, there's no reason to do it from the cellulose ethanol molecule versus the corn ethanol molecule, and there's no reason it has to be a U.S. created molecule versus a uh, Brazilian created molecule. Over that answers the question.
4: So thank you for mentioning the project um, you know I think that there is a real drive um, on the consumer side uh, to be able to incorporate more bio-based uh, products into our everyday consumer um, options um, and so this is just yet another example of some of the bio-based products um, that can be incorporated um, in a sustainable way into the products that we buy at the grocery store um, but I think that you know both the corn ethanol and the cellulosic ethanol industry have a number of of, um, of co products that are going to be coming off of these facilities um, that can be used to displace other fossil based alternatives um, that can really improve um, our um, greenhouse gas emissions in terms of the uh, electricity that we're using in this country, um, but also to replace some alternatives um, in the products that we use every day. Great. Okay, there's a question. Okay. Uh, back there, and then we'll be set.
0: Hi, uh, Peter. Reda, I'm freelance. Um, I've got a question for everybody, and then I sort of got individual questions. Is that okay? Well, we'll see. Okay. No. Well, is, uh,
6: what is a uh, acceptable number for the cellulose and ethanol RFS requirement oh. for uh, for this year and next year? Um, you know, kind of ballpark. i don't to put you on the spot, but um, and then uh, individual questions. Um, Rob, you just mentioned the cook stoves. Uh, that's wonderful. I mean, I pay fifteen dollars a gallon for ethanol in in Home Depot for my cook stove and my boat. Uh, you guys can kind of beat that, you know. And and people, I think, would buy you know you know green green alcohol. Um, let me just sort of knock off the questions all at once, if that's sure. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. They're short questions. Okay. Um, holy. um I'm sorry. When's the next one and where? Plan. <coughs> Um, I was very disappointed. I saw all your slides, and it looked really, really close, and I know you guys do a lot of solar. I didn't see any solar PV in any of your plants, but you know, maybe there's a reason. Um, Amy, I'm going to to you. I know you don't remember the gas lines, and that's a compliment, But um, and, and this is sort of a question for everybody, too. If you look at a blend pump, you know, E15, E20, Mm -hmm. E30, you never see octane numbers. And octane is the whole, you know, argument in all of this, and I'm I'm glad it was mentioned a little bit, but uh, I'm sort of leaving you that question, but anybody can answer it. That was it? Okay. And you can talk from there as far as I'm concerned. Okay, right. if that's okay, then
0: just make sure your mics are on. Okay.
6: So the
2: first question to me was about cook and how there's demand. Uh, give me your name, and I will definitely try to get some uh, memories no, out to no, you. No, um, the, the important question was, uh, what, what
6: should the RFS be? For cellular and ethanol, for this year or next year?
2: Well, this is, uh, I think there is a balancing act that EPA is trying to uh, undertake. I think the levels need to be set relative to the amount that is being produced. They have that ability under the RFS statute to provide a waiver down to the amount of ethanol that's being produced. Again, this goes back to the market issue. If you build it, there will be a market for you. So we have all submitted uh, volumes that we think we can hit this year. And EPA is supposed to set the volume, the cellulosity volumes at that level. Um, and it allows us to go back into the investment pool and tell them: look. You invest this investment in the technology, has a home, we're getting revenue from this product, invest in the next one. Uh, Where's the next plant going to be? Where's the next sub plant going to be? Um, I think we will know uh, once we have a final rule, because that will probably dictate where we go. Um, A bad rule... Uh, and hopefully, it's understood what a bad rule looks like with this methodology that gives great uncertainty to the investment community. <clears throat> sends us to a country that has uh, other incentives. Remember, we don't receive taxpayer dollars. We have the artifacts, We have market certainty. If we get rid of that market certainty, we get nothing here really to compel us or to move us into the marketplace. So then we look at Brazil with their E27E30. Mandate. Um, we look at Thailand where they have a tax holiday that they're offering. China, which would just <laughs> bend over backwards uh, with a host of incentives, suite of incentives. So um, we, we will see where the next month is.
6: If you like the rule, will you make an announcement shortly thereafter about the less- U.S.?
2: Uh, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying one way or the other.
3: Uh, I'd echo, from Evergo's standpoint, I would echo Rob's comments on, on the EPA. Uh, the EPA is, is the one who's in the best position to determine these numbers because we've all had confidential communications with the EPA about what we expect to produce this year and next. Uh, and in addition, the EPA is the only one that knows for sure what is going on in the pathways that they're issuing. They've recently issued a, a biogas pathway that potentially could add uh, significant gallons of cellulosic ethanol both this year and in the future. So. They really didn't. <coughs> really but now, uh, Avangrid, of course, is one of the world's leading providers of uh, CSP thermal solar. Uh, and and yes, no, we don't have thermal solar in Yucca Kansas, but we have thermal solar in many other places. Two of the largest projects in Arizona and uh, uh, California. We also have PV projects. We also have uh, renewable power from wind and other other things. But uh, But this one is uh, renewable power from biomass, and that's what Cugiton is.
4: So I think just to add to what my colleagues um, indicated about the cellulosic volumes, I think the other side of the story um, needs to be that, you know, as we um, accommodate the cellulosic ethanol that's coming online, uh, we don't need to thereby subtract from the first generation cord ethanol industry. It doesn't help us at all to raise the cellulosic volumes, but then to cut the first generation cord ethanol volumes, and so that's the other side of the story there. Um, As to the question around the photovoltaics at um, DuPont's um, cellulosic ethanol facility, thank you for... Um, recognizing that technology, um, that's certainly something that's important to our business. Um, but I think, as you've heard today from all of us, um, you know, bringing the cellulose of technology in these plants online has really been a priority. Um, and so we really wanted to focus there. And um, so certainly we could have incorporated other technologies and other um, opportunities in those plants. Um, it, it certainly would have um, sidelined us or, or delayed with the process. We wanted to make sure that we could bring um, this fuel online as quickly as possible. Uh,
5: and then quickly um, on the octane, um, I didn't hear a specific question there, but I agree it's a big part of the story, so it um, certainly should, should continue to be. Um, and on the volumes, I would agree with everyone here, and like I said before, it's the methodology, and if the methodology is right, the numbers will take care of itself. But generally speaking, if it's made, um, it needs to be up to the statute requirements. Um, we need to see that it's going to um, find a place in the market, otherwise it's difficult to build, build additional capacity. Um, and I would also remind folks that we are so far delayed this year that we basically have 10 months of actual data for the year. So I would um, think it should be relatively straightforward. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, here um, first and then we'll come
0: back to you.
3: Hi, I'm Brian Oakes, the National Association of Wheat Growers. My question is specifically for Avenue as it relates to your new Kansas facility. Are you receiving any biomass crop assistance? program funding from the USDA? Okay, Evan Goa is not. We think some of our providers may uh, may be doing that and we have uh, by the way, even though we're about 80% corn stover, but uh, the next largest uh, source of our feedstock is feedstock, just for your information.
0: Okay, back
6: here. Um, Mark Carr, uh, Channel Design Group. Uh, for POET, you talked
2: about the uh, at uh, the back end cogeneration and the uh, and all that, what what is the final um, waste product? I mean, what is is ash the final product? And what are you doing with the ash? Because you're going to generate a lot of ash. Yeah, at, you don't have to look at me. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, ash is one of the uh, uh, is is one of the uh, byproducts of. That we don't necessarily have a home for currently. Um, in, in another lifetime, I, I've worked in the power sector, so I'm well aware of the transition that's happening there right now uh, from moving from coal to natural gas. Um, and as you see that reduction in coal, uh, there will be a dearth of fly ash available uh, to cement companies. So uh, that is certainly an area that we're looking at. Um, The conversations uh, are ongoing, but uh, currently the uh, co-product that that generates the most revenue is the heat because these plants, while they are together, they are uh, organized independently. So the Liberty plant, the cellulosic plant, sells heat to the corn plant. So the corn plant is actually a customer of Liberty. And that revenue source is really important to making this first this first iteration of Liberty work. But there are other co-products coming. I mean, that's that's when we first started uh, creating corn ethanol. I think everyone would agree we didn't know necessarily what size ethanol we would create. And now you're starting to see all these technologies, all these applications come out of it. One idea that's been floated around out there is taking that lignin and instead of turning it into process heat you could actually turn it into a, corn, uh, a carbon fiber uh, technology that uh, automobiles might be able to use. So again, this is innovation. This is where you start to see that job creation happen, and this is the reason you want to have those plants here. We've seeded the solar field uh, in terms of uh, panel generation to China. Uh, nuclear has, is going overseas. Uh, is this going to be another industry that leaves the borders of the U.S. and goes overseas and you start to see that creation, that shop floor innovation take place. So hopefully that answers. Okay. Uh, any other? Okay. Over
5: here.
2: Hi, uh, Stephen Hopkinson, I'm a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellow. Um, I'm sort of hearing two stories here. You came up here and told us how commercially viable ethanol is and, and how the CAFE standards are going to push for all this, but you also need these market corrections from the RFS standards. Um, And that is kind of conflicting. Is this a a permanent need for market corrections? Or is it uh, something that you think needs to be there forever for cellulosic ethanol to be uh, commercially viable?
3: Um, No, this is not a permanent need. However, we are in the unique situation of having Uh, our customer being our competitor at the same time. When you have a situation where uh, the petroleum companies get to buy whatever they want, and include that in their fuel, their uh, history has shown us that they are going to use their own product. If we want to change that, if we want to use something besides petroleum, there has to be some incentive, some policy that that, uh, will allow that to happen. And uh, while that policy doesn't need to go on forever, it needs to go on until this this is established, and, and we have a true competition instead of uh, you know what we have today, which is absolutely not an open market. Anybody else want to comment on
6: that? Okay, go ahead. Howard Marks with Energetics, I have a question for Amy, and that is you just returned from Brazil. You said, could you tell us about the level of cooperation between the Brazilian uh, biofuels industry and the Brazilian Automobile <coughs> <coughs> Manufacturers Association? Because many of those members of the association are also U.S.-owned companies, so... I will try. (laughs) I don't promise
5: much, uh, and I'm hoping to learn much more. Um, But there is uh, a long history of cooperation there. Um, As I said in my presentation, they've obviously been embarking on this together for the guidance from the Brazilian government for more than 30, 40 years. Um, so they have um, some head start on us. But um, for example, with the twenty-five, twenty-seven point five percent increase um, to their blend, it's now in a review period that does go to the auto manufacturers. Because that 27, just to be clear, that 27.5% is for regular automobiles, not flex fuel, regular. Which, of course, again, we are told we can't do more than 10. They're at 25 right now. They're going to 27.5%. So that that has to go through a regulatory process that that involves
3: the auto-manufacturers to um, give their sign-off that that is an acceptable field for them. And and my understanding is that historically that process is smooth. But that's the best I can do right now. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, I, quick question. Sure. Uh, I'm not sure Amy knows the answer to this, but you talked a lot about Brazil. Um, do you know how much uh oil Brazil still imports? You said we're at 33%. Mm-hmm. They chose a different strategy than us.
5: I don't I don't know the answer to that for sure. Um, I think I do remember hearing that they, um, in recent years, they go back and forth between being energy independent. Right. So they've done a significant amount of um, exploration domestically as well over the last uh, at least 10 years that's increased there, Carol, you may know yeah. more than I do. I
0: don't know the exact number on that. Happy to get back to you and let, let you know, um, because they did have some very large oil lines off the coast, um, particularly uh, in the Rio area. Uh, but happy to follow up with you on that. But I think that it, what's really striking is in terms of thinking about, um, I think, the whole role that, as as Amy talked about, the, the course that has been followed in Brazil with a lot of the same players that we also have in the U.S., so it's just a, a very interesting kind of juxtaposition. And and I guess in terms of you know thinking about what what we've heard here today, and and I must say this is true no matter who that I have spoken with over so many years in terms of thinking about uh, renewable energy technologies, whether it is wind, or solar, or geothermal, or hydro, or whatever, that just as here, it is critical, and, and, and I should say that with regard to what we've also heard from other governments, as well as from industry, that policy is very, very important, that policy does matter, because that is critical in terms of market certainty, and that that makes all the difference in the world, in terms of really driving innovation and the, the development of new products and, and markets. I think that it's also absolutely fascinating in terms of as we learn more and more about the huge array of products that can come out of biorefineries and that can be responsive to all sorts of, of needs and opportunities depending upon where you are and what those market, various market niches are in terms of thinking about bio-waste bio waste products as well as fuels and how that can all be very complementary. And, and I think that we are also dealing with a very, very uh, uh, major challenge because as you also heard right now in terms of thinking about the whole role of policy and as a couple people mentioned too, that there are a variety of pathways available under the renewable fuel standard that have actually also been coming on strong and and where have really increased over the last, certainly over the uh, this last year, including things like biodiesel, biogas, um, renewable, uh, uh, gasoline insurance looking at dropping biofuels, that there are a whole array of things that are here. That makes getting some degree of policy Certainty that does allow for a whole market expansion, terribly important, and that there are a whole array of, of benefits and oh, we would submit a variety of issues, including public health, as well as the need to address carbon um, and security that are really important for us to take a very clear-eyed look at so that we really are, make sure that we're informed, making smarter choices, but understanding what really has happened in terms of sort of this whole investment that really has occurred and indeed are not phantom fuels, but are here in commercial production, and that this is actually a very, very exciting time. So I want to thank all of our speakers. I hope that you all got something out of this briefing. The presentations will be up on our website, if you have questions, please feel free to contact us. And as I said, we are really hoping to do uh additional briefings in a series to look at uh ever more kinds of biofuels that really are coming into the market and and show great potential uh as, as we move forward, as we look for alternatives to the status quo. So thank you all very, very much for coming and thank you for a wonderful panel.